So 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll begin at the first verse as we give our attention to God's holy word. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, brought up in the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wise tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourselves wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. May God add his blessing to his holy word. Amen. Well, imagine with me that you are in the market to buy a new house. Some of you don't have to imagine very hard. You've recently been through that process. But imagine you this morning are in the market to buy a new house, and it's come to your attention that there is a a house near you that is for sale by owner, and so you go to have a look. You drive up, and immediately it strikes you that the street appeal or the curb appeal, as real estate agents say, is amazing. You've never seen such a lush, manicured lawn. The landscaping looks professional. And the whole exterior has recently been completely updated and refinished. You're tempted to buy it on the spot. It's so amazing. But then you step inside. The hardwood floors are worn and warped and filthy. 
There is not one wall in the entire house that doesn't have a huge ding or even a hole in the drywall. The ceilings are water-stained. The foundation is crumbling. The joists are rotten. The bathrooms are covered in black mold. And the attic is full of raccoons. Well, not only is the sale out of the question, but you walk away thinking, who does that? Who lives with that kind of huge contradiction in their lives between the outside and the inside? Well, I'd venture to say that most people in Canada do. And there's a very good chance that your neighbors do. And it may even be true of someone here listening right now. For physical training is of some value, says the Word of God. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. We've come this morning to our third faithful saying in Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus. And what was true of the house we just imagined is exactly what Paul is warning and encouraging Timothy about. And the word of God is, God himself is warning and encouraging all of us about this same thing regarding our own lives. And so in this third faithful saying from 1 Timothy 4, 8, 9, we're going to consider first the priority of godliness. Second, the profit of godliness. And last, the promise of godliness. Easy to remember, the priority of godliness, the profit of godliness, and the promise of godliness. Well, first, the priority of godliness. Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Godliness is the theme of this third faithful saying. Well, what is it? What is godliness? The word means reverence and respect and piety toward God. Having God in your thoughts and then ordering your life as a result of having God in your thoughts, the true and living God, and conforming your life to God's own thoughts revealed in the Bible. Your life conformed out of reverence for God to his word and to his law. Jerry Bridges, who wrote The Pursuit of Holiness, helpful little book, defined godliness as devotion to God which results in a life that is pleasing to him. One article put it this way, and it's an extended quotation but I think it's very helpful. What comes to mind when you hear the word godliness? What do you mean when you call someone godly? 
In the original Greek, the word here relates to reverence, awe, fear, and respect for God. It involves having that reverence and respect toward, respect toward the true God that leads to worship, love, service, and obedience. It is the opposite of worldliness. That's helpful. Godliness, on the one hand. Worldliness is on the other hand. Worldliness is having, the article continues, is having a secular point of view as the pole star of your life. It involves having things that perish, spoil, and fade as the guiding principles and motivating factors in your life. Ungodliness is driven by the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Godliness, conversely, is a life with God as your moral north star. To be godly is to be aware of the presence of the holy and loving and gracious God everywhere we go. The degree of our godliness is in proportion to the degree of our awareness of God in our lives. You could say that to be godly is to be God-conscious. Godliness is a life consciously lived before the face of God. Maurice Roberts explains that, quote, Godliness is not easy to define in a word or two. It is the hunger in the heart of a renewed person for God. Neither morality, nor giftedness, nor eloquence, nor cleverness is the marrow of Christianity, but godliness is. The measure of a man is the measure of this appetite for union and communion with the living God. Small appetite proves small grace. Large appetite proves much grace. No appetite shows there is no grace at all. You perhaps remember that one of John Calvin's mottos was Coram Deo. Our congregation in Squamish, British Columbia has named that the Coram Deo Church. It means to live before the face of God. We all do that, but to do that consciously. To have the awareness that wherever I am, whatever I am saying or thinking or doing, it is with God looking and seeing and hearing everything. William Hendrickson says that a Christian practices godliness when he is fully conscious of God's presence in every circumstance. Godliness. And this third saying has godliness as its theme. And godliness will affect and should and must affect every area of life. It affects everything. But godliness itself must be the priority. In particular here, Paul shows the priority of godliness by contrasting godliness with uh, being concerned only with the things of this life, worldliness. Paul contrasts the physical, as it were, with the spiritual, the body with the soul, the outside versus the inside. Godliness must have the priority. God created man, the Bible tells us, soul and body, both. But man in sin has often missed 
the narrow way of God's truth as these two parts of who we are relate to each other. Some have so focused on the spiritual that the body is neglected, or some kind of unbiblical, strict laws are imposed upon people. That's the first part of chapter 4. Some ancient Greek philosophies even said that the material or the physical was evil in and of itself. And that kind of thinking not only distorts human life, it ends up, as it often did, denying even the incarnation and the work of Jesus Christ. If he's God, he couldn't take on human nature. These are the ancient docetists, they're called, who taught that Jesus only seemed to be human. He only appeared to be like us in every way, denying Hebrews 2.17. And so that can happen. But on the other hand, many in the history of this fallen world have had a concern for the physical while denying or ignoring the spiritual. These are the materialists, the secularists. That just means to be concerned only with this life. People who forget, deny, or ignore that they have a soul. Sometimes, I think that that is one of the most prominent and basic duties I have as a minister of the gospel, to go to people and simply to say, what about your soul? What about your soul? We can talk about all those other things. You have a soul. Boys and girls, you have a soul that God gave you. A body and a soul. Don't ever forget that you have a soul as well as a body. To deny, ignore, or forget that you have a soul is very much the spirit of our age. And nothing is new under the sun. Eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We live in a culture, isn't it true, where body issues of all kinds rule the day. Isn't that what it is? It's body issues. And whatever those issues are, and as shocking sometimes as those things are, and it can be shocking, but no matter who someone is that's doing this, I just want to come to them too. And just say, you have a soul, you know. We can talk about what you're doing to your body, and we can talk about what hormones you're putting into your body. But listen, you have a soul. What about your soul? And I start there. We should start there with people. What about God? And what about your soul? It's body issues. It's the physical that rules the day. Just in terms of physical health, 
For example, the U.S. fitness industry revenue in 2021 was 33 and a quarter billion dollars. In the United States, 39% of Americans hold gym memberships. Between now and 2028, the fitness industry is expected to grow to $434.74 billion. Millennials, we're told, use fitness apps more than any other groups, with women using them twice as much as men. 46% want as much quantifiable data about their health as possible, and 54% are likely to buy a body-analyzing device. That sounds fancy. It could just be a weigh scale. Body-analyzing device. A concern for the physical. And a lack of concern for the spiritual. That's really the issue. It's the lack of concern for the spiritual. The Word of God presents the truth in perfect harmony, balance, proportion, and priority. Paul doesn't deny or dismiss or demean the physical. It's not Christian to do that. And so even in this faithful saying... Physical training is of some value. Part of the Christian life is being a good steward of all of our gifts, including the bodies that God has given to us. And this is especially true for Christians. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. We are to do that. So many people just take care of their body and they want to look good for other people. Just for other people. And they'll take selfies and post them all over the internet because they look so good. For God? No, that's for other people. And then ultimately for yourself. The believer takes care of his body because it is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, honor God with your body. This is what we are to do as a Christian. Physical training is of some value. Obesity has almost tripled globally since 1975. More than 1.9 billion adults were overweight in 2016, of whom 650 million were obese. And so, this faithful saying does teach us, with regard to diet and exercise, all the way to sexual morality, that physical discipline is of some value. For some of us this morning, even the lesser good of this text will bring conviction. The King James says, if you read the King James, for bodily exercise profiteth little. In our ears, that's too disparaging of physical training and stewardship. It's better in the NIV. It is of some value. If it profits little, you think, oh, I can just discard it then. It's of just little profit. No, the point is, it is of some value. Or of value for a while. It can be in that sense as well, for a 
a period of time while we live. And so there is value. It is profitable. Jonathan Edwards, who is known for his spiritual discipline, chopped wood every day for half an hour. I've never seen it. I've seen a picture of him preaching. I haven't seen a picture of him chopping wood. But he did. So faithful is the word. Trustworthy is the word. Physical training is of some value. But whether you treat your body like a temple or like an amusement park, the more important thing, the key to everything is to remember your soul and to think about godliness. One writer said, think for a moment, why were you born into the world? Not merely to eat and drink and to indulge the desires of the flesh, not merely to dress up your body and to follow its lusts wherever they may lead you, not merely to work and sleep and laugh and talk and enjoy yourselves and think of nothing but this life. No, you were meant for something higher and better than this. You were placed here to train for eternity. It is flying in the face of God's purposes to do as many do, to make the soul a servant to the body and not the body a servant to the soul. You have a soul, and godliness has the priority. What does it profit a person if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? The priority of godliness. But why? Why this priority? Well, Paul provides reasons, and we see, secondly, the profit of godliness. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. There is value, literally, the word is profit or usefulness in physical training, as we've considered. But godliness is useful for all things, for every aspect of life. Godliness has value for all things, including physical training. It's dangerous, I think, to pursue physical training without godliness because we are so tempted to idolatry. We are so tempted to pride. It's dangerous to train physically hard without godliness. Godliness by God's grace and spirit, will keep us from pride and idolatry in sports. Are you good at sports? Do you train hard at sports? Do you you practice the, the move on the soccer field a thousand times until you can just embarrass the defenseman? That's dangerous without godliness because you'll, you'll get puffed up. Idolatry in sports, in diet. I think it's dangerous to be hyper-obsessed about nutrition without godliness because it will turn into an idol in your life. And you'll be more concerned about what kind of honey you eat than God. In physical looks, we've already covered that. When we have godliness, our God won't be our stomach. 
It won't be any created thing or part of life. Godliness is profitable for all things. Think of that. What will be of most usefulness, of most profit in your job, in your marriage, in your family, in your parenting, in your relationships, in your finances, in your recreation? What will be of most profit to you? Godliness. What is most profitable to you in your fears and your anxieties and your failures? Godliness. What will be most useful to you in your ambitions, your goals, your decisions in life, your successes? Successes are as dangerous as failures. What will be most useful to you? Godliness. Taking care of your body as much as possible will be a blessing in God's providence and grace, but godliness will bring the greater benefits and blessings in your life. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, 1 Timothy 6. 6. Godliness has value for all things. But Paul expands on that reason with, thirdly, the promise of godliness. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. And then this, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And we have to read this very carefully because Paul is not only getting at a temporal distinction. It's, it's true. He's not merely distinguishing between something that has benefit only now versus something that has benefit now and then. That's true, but the Greek, the original here, is more concrete than just holding promise. As the New International Version translates in other English versions, the King James here is closer. When it says godliness is profitable as it holds promise of life, both for the present and for the future. Do you see the difference? The promise is actually life. It's not just promise in a vague sense now versus now and then. But it's actually the promise of life now and then. And that's much more profound, isn't it? What this means is that if you possess even good physical health, apart from godliness, that in the grand scheme of things is still death. It's still death. Because Ephesians 2.1, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. In 1 Timothy 5, the next chapter, Paul speaks about widows, but it's true of all who are outside of the grace of God. The widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. You can be physically alive and spiritually dead. Spiritual 
death in this life, and if that doesn't change, headed for the second death in eternity, eternal conscious punishment under God's holy wrath. That's biblical death, ultimately. But the godly man or woman, boy or girl, truly lives in this life and in the life to come. That's the point. And the mention of the promise of life, as life being the promise, reminds us that we must never consider godliness and discipline toward godliness apart from the Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, in whom there is life. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Real godliness is never some sort of nebulous spirituality in relation to a vague sense of deity. That's not godliness. The only godliness that is life and will be life eternal is centered in and built upon the person of Jesus Christ, incarnate, crucified, risen, and ascended for the salvation of his people. The kind of discipline leading to godliness which can be expressed in these words, not that I have already obtained or already made perfect, but I press on that I may take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already taken hold of me. I do not count myself to have already attained it, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching toward the things which I press on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of of God in Christ Jesus. So let me just have two practical applications from the priority, the profit, and the promise of godliness in, that, in this third faithful saying. The first is simply trust. Trust in Christ. If you look at verse 10, right after the faithful saying, he says, Paul says, For this we labor and strive that we have put our hope in the living God who is the Savior of all men, and especially those who believe. He says, we labor and strive. Paul says this faithful saying calls for exertion for ourselves and as we minister for others. It's not just a a, a self-centered thing. It's a laboring and a striving and a discipline for the blessing and benefit of others, God willing. We labor and strive. We agonize, literally. Some manuscripts reflected in the King James say we suffer reproach. But how do you do that? In your own strength, by your own self-determination and discipline? No, it's by hope in the living God. A hopeful trust in God, the living and true God, and the one he has sent, Jesus Christ, for this is eternal life. This faithful saying always has to be read and lived in a gospel context. This is not a bare command. Train yourself to be godly. It's not just a bare command. It's not just going to a gym called the good life run by Mr. Legality in the town of morality some kind of spiritual fitness coach of self-righteousness barking at you in the gym to give me ten more. That's not gospel preaching. Trust in Christ. 
Trust in Christ. Trust Him and His finished work, His finished work, for the life, for the forgiveness and righteousness and daily grace and strength that are in Him. And for the hope that the result is certain, that there will be gains in this life and fully, perfectly, and eternally in the life to come. Godliness has value for the promise of life in this life and the life to come. The only godliness that is life and will be life eternal is centered in and built upon the person of Jesus Christ. Without faith in Christ, no spiritual disciplines as our own efforts to be godly could ever be acceptable to the holy God. But in Christ, enjoying his forgiveness and righteousness, we are declared to be righteous in our justification and called to be righteous in our sanctification. Let me just have a quick word because it probably caught your eye when the verse 10 says he's the Savior of all, especially those who believe. What are we to make of that statement? It's not universalism that everyone will be saved. Otherwise, the second part would be meaningless, especially those who believe. And it's not merely the Arminian view that God is willing to be the Savior of all because the first part doesn't say that. It says he is the Savior of all. The key is the meaning, the biblical range of meaning of the word Savior or save. We sang it in Psalm 36. Your righteousness is like the highest mountains, your justice like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both people and animals. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word there is save. You save people and animals. It's God's providential kindness and preservation of this world. And that actually fits very well, doesn't it, with the faithful saying. God provides for and sustains and blesses all people in all our earthly lives, material lives. Those even with a merely physical concern need to know and remember that God gives them their bodies and their breath, their nutrition and their strength. But is God in their thoughts? He's the Savior especially of those who believe. Saved in the highest sense, the broadest sense, and the eternal sense. But then if you are a believer, here's the second, the last practical application. Train. Train. That's the verse just before the faithful saying. Train yourself to be godly. And you likely know that Paul uses the term here from the Greek word, world of athletics. He gives us our word gymnastics. Train yourself gymnasticize yourself to be godly. Gymnasticize yourself, not just to do a back walkover, which takes a lot of training, but to be godly. There's no such thing as an instant athlete. Some people may have greater innate propensity athletically to achieve proficiency, but to achieve proficiency, that requires training and discipline. And we often have no stomach for that. I went to the driving range once. Why do I still slice the golf ball? I cut out ice cream for a day. Why am I still not losing weight? This word implies a regular sustained effort. We are being told that there is no instant mature Christian life. Godliness can be achieved only through persevering, painstaking, and diligent effort, as Jerry Bridges writes. 
J.C. Ryle, in his book, Holiness, said, I will never shrink from declaring my belief that there are no spiritual gains without pains. No pain, no gain. I should as soon expect a farmer to prosper in business who contented himself with sowing his fields and then never looking at them till harvest, as expect a believer to attain much holiness who is not diligent about his Bible reading, his prayers, and the use of his Sundays. Training. Diet. Exercise. Train yourself to be godly. You've probably seen the t-shirt, I only train on days that end with the letter Y. Well, so do I. But on the Lord's Day, God has given me a day of worship and of spiritual disciplines, especially toward godliness, because godliness has value for all things, having the promise of life now and in the life to come. You probably know the name Eric Liddell. Almost everyone does because of the the movie Chariots of Fire, who in the 1924 Paris Olympics refused to run a race on the Lord's Day. And you think, wow, what kind of discipline he had when he has Olympic glory on the one hand and godliness on the other hand. How is he able to turn away from Olympic glory and pursue godliness? Well, I'll tell you how. It wasn't by running barefoot on a beach in a white suit. That's what people are interested in. How did he run so fast? You should be interested in how did he think nothing of an Olympic gold medal when compared to godliness? How did he do that? Later in his life, when he was in a Japanese internment camp, he wrote a book in Chinese for the Chinese people called The Disciplines of the Christian Life. He committed himself to daily, early morning Bible reading and prayer. That's how he trained himself. Do you think he instantly was just able to say no to an Olympic gold medal? was years and years and years of training every day to be godly so that when the day came and when the real race was being run, the real race of the Christian life, he had the strength to say no to the world and yes to God. Every part of our lives should reflect biblical discipline and training, to be fueled by biblical discipline and training. Train yourself to be godly. Because everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize.